Hi, everybody. This is Scott Holstein with CompuTrolls, and welcome back to the Building Technology Podcast. Today, I'm joined by our guest, Mr. Joe Haiti. Uh, Mr. Haiti is a Loma Denver past president. He manages a growing consulting firm specializing in energy efficiency, commissioning, and retro commissioning with offices, projects, and has projects around the country. Active clients include UC Health, Stanford, Heinz, and Northwestern Hospital. Joe is senior vice president at Lehman Brothers, responsible for design, construction, facilities, and leasing in 100-plus locations. He was vice president and equity owner at Denver Place, where his team completed the largest energy retrofit in Denver history and the first Energy Star and LEED EV building in Colorado. He also is a regional, he was a regional chief engineer with Heinz, managing large buildings in several cities. He has a master's degree in real estate and construction management from the University of Denver and is an adjunct professor in the same program. Joe, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for joining us today. Well, Scott, thanks for asking me, and I'm I'm very excited. This is my first podcast, so I appreciate you uh, inviting me. That's fantastic. Um, so a little bit of background. I actually had the, the good fortune of seeing Joe speak at a couple of events um, on a, a variety of topics. Um, you know, we mentioned in Joe's bio that he was a regional chief engineer for some time. Um, so Joe has a wealth of knowledge when it comes to managing buildings and um, really, you know, what we're trying to do with this podcast is we talk about all things smart buildings, and it's really geared towards facility managers. So, Joe, you have a really unique perspective in this. Can you tell us a little bit more about your background as uh, an actual building engineer? Sure, sure, Scott. I mean, I, I started out, I'm from Chicago originally, and I uh, worked as a building engineer uh, at, at an early age in Chicago, in some of the big buildings in downtown Chicago. And, uh, and I moved out to Denver when I finished high school and went to trade school in Denver. I went to automotive trade school in Denver. I went to the top rated, number one rated auto, auto mechanic school in the country. At that time, it was called Denver Automotive and Diesel College. And then, uh, long story short, I ended up back in buildings after a few years as a mechanic and uh, started a, at a large hotel in downtown Denver, the Denver Hilton, which is now the Sheridan, which at that time was the largest hotel conference facility in the five-state area. And I was 24 years old at the time, and the chief engineer needed an assistant chief. Nobody in the crew wanted to take the job because he was a very difficult guy to work for, which is putting it mildly, and uh, I took the job. <laughs> And I was an assistant chief of, a, of one of the largest facilities in Colorado at 24 years old. And I've been in management uh, of buildings ever since then. And I'm 63 now. So I've been going at it now almost 40 years. And I was uh, assistant chief for a number of years at the Denver Hilton. Then I was a chief engineer. Uh, shortly after that, there was a major building boom in the early 1980s driven by uh, oil and gas industry in Denver. And there were a bunch of Canadian developers building high-rises all over downtown Denver. Three of the three tallest buildings in Denver, the Republic Plaza, 1801 California, and the Wells Fargo uh, Center Tower. Those are three 50-plus story buildings. They were all built at that time. And uh, within a few years of being a chief, I was chief of one of the tallest buildings in Denver for Heinz when I was 29 years old. 
which was a 52-story, 1.2 million square foot uh, office building that Heinz developed. And I worked for Heinz for a number of years and worked up, worked my way up into a regional chief engineer position with Heinz. And then after I left Heinz, I was a senior sales engineer with Johnson Controls for a while. And then on a sales call, I was at Denver Place and the owners of Denver Place I was on a sales call with and they turned the sales call into an interview. And I went to work for them two weeks later and was there for 10 years became an equity owner of uh, some of the buildings at Denver Place. And then I was with Lehman Brothers for a number of years. And now I've been uh, with my own consulting company for nine years. That's great. It's a, I mean, like you said, you're, you've always been in this space and um, you have a very unique perspective on our topic today, which is going to be how facility managers stay relevant in this ever changing landscape of smart buildings in the digital age. Um, so before we jump into that, I, I did want to um, also ask you a little bit more about eCube. Um, you know, I mentioned that you all specialize in energy efficiency, commissioning, retro commissioning, and mentioned some of your you know major clients throughout the country. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about where eCube is? You know, where eCube's specialization is, and really sure. what uh, you all do sure. particularly well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we're we're a very unique consulting company. Uh, we're, we're viewed as unique, and we like to believe we're very unique. And what makes us unique, like any company, is the quality of the people that we have. We have zero turnover, which I think is a very fundamentally important way to manage any kind of a business or any kind of a building, is to have very, very, very low turnover and to have high-quality personnel working for you. So eCube actually is a company that I hired for 25 years to help me do energy retrofits and energy analysis on buildings all over the country as a building owner and manager. And I went through about 10 energy efficiency consultants in the 80s and 90s when energy efficiency wasn't the hottest topic back in those days, but I was heavily focused on it 30 years ago for one simple reason. It helped reduce operating costs and make every building that I've been associated with uh, uh, more competitive and, uh, and provide higher comfort for the tenants with these retrofits and, and number two, increase energy efficiency. So the biggest driver was always improving comfort with these retrofits and uh, upgrading aging systems with these retrofits. And secondarily was the energy efficiency piece. And I still believe that today, that I think the second component is still energy efficiency. The first component of these upgrades, even today, should always be focused on providing comfort. Because without comfort in a building, you don't have tenants and you don't have revenue and you're, 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 you know, you're, you're in bad shape at that point. So number one is tenant, tenant comfort. Number two is still energy efficiency. But I hired eCube over 25 years after going through about 10 other consultants that were in that space. And EQ was the standout company. And for 25 years from that day, when I found EQ, I saw the founder speak at a big event and walked up to him after the event and started and gave him a shot at one of Heinz's 50-story buildings to help us with some retrofits and was blown away by the quality of the work. And I single-sourced all the consulting for energy efficiency with three or four different companies over the subsequent 25 years. And nine years ago, the founder of eCube, who became a very close friend of mine, was dying from leukemia. 
and went to dinner with me, had me sign a non-disclosure agreement and asked me to take over the company from him and help, uh, you know, transition the company. And so here I am today. And so I've got several business partners uh, with EQ that also own stock in the company. We have zero turnover. We have uh, about half of our staff, our hands-on, blue-collar background, building engineers, mechanical contractors, controls experts from Johnson and Honeywell and Siemens, ex-TAB backgrounds. And then the other half of our staff is our mechanical engineers with a very hands-on background in mechanical engineering. Very nice. Um, yeah, I've, I've only gotten a brief experience with EQ, but, uh, you know, nothing but positive things to say. Um, so um, jumping into our topic here today um, for, you know, facility managers, with the evolution of smart buildings, the job description of a building engineer has changed drastically over the last five to ten years. What are some of the ways you've seen the role of a building engineer change over this time? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the role has changed significantly, and, and, you know, we've got a serious problem uh, today with a shortage of highly qualified building engineers, and we have a serious, and when I say serious, I mean serious. We have a very serious problem today with uh, finding and hiring and retaining highly qualified building engineers, chief engineers, controls technicians, TAB experts, test adjust and balance experts, mechanical contractors that are really top rated. There's a lot of bad work being done out there by all of the above. And, and, and a lot of it is primarily due to lack of training and lack of education and lack of knowledge and lack of experience. So, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's really at the point where with this whole drive to improve the efficiency of buildings, it's making it even a more of a serious problem because how do we improve the efficiency of buildings all over the country and all over the world if we don't have the qualified people to do it? So what do you think has been the driver behind the, the shortage of building engineers? You know, why, why is it today that we're running into this issue? I think uh, there's, you know, I, I get that question a lot, Scott, and I think uh, a lot of it has to do with the perception of people, and it also has a lot to do with high school kids have no idea what a building engineer does. You know, high school kids are focused on either going to trade school or going to, to college. And being a building engineer or a building operator isn't even on their radar. And, uh, and there's, so there's little known about the profession, I think, is the main problem. And there's also little, no, little known about what a great profession it is and that it really does pay very good money and it's uh, more than a living wage. Uh, you know, chief engineers in, in any of the central business districts around the country, chief engineers are making six figures of the big buildings. And uh, that's probably not very well known that it's it's the money is extremely good and it's a high level of responsibility. It is, it is truly a career that somebody can do for their entire life. Yeah, I agree. And I honestly think that the transition to these, you know, smarter buildings is something that could eventually attract um, some of the younger talent out there back to this profession. Um, if for no other reason than, you know, the, the younger generation is very technology driven, um, you know, do, do you do you think that that could potentially bring people back into the profession? And, um, you know, what are what are again, going back to the original question, I guess, is what are some of those major changes that you've seen 
from you know the building engineer of when you started um, your career in that profession versus what these what these guys are doing today. Well, I mean, the evolution that I've seen is you know every every maintenance crew and engineering crew of the of the larger buildings in any of the downtowns needs to have really really highly qualified people in house that know controls, that know test and adjust and balance, that understand systems inside out, that know central plants inside out, boilers and chillers, and uh, and the automation piece that I've seen evolve over the years, starting with Johnson Controls had the JC80 back in the 70s and 80s, and they went to the JC85, then they went to Metasys, and they're still kind of hung up on Metasys today for God knows what reason. Uh, but, uh, you know, the evolution is, is, has been interesting to watch and the, the in-house staff that understands these controls and understands these automation systems is critical to these large buildings. So there, you know, if you have five building engineers in a large building, one or two of them need to be very adept at the automation system and really go through a lot of training and a lot of hands-on experience working with Johnson or Siemens or whoever the controls company is and, uh, and not be so reliant on the vendors to do all the work for them. So I think with the, the younger people today coming into the industry, I think it is a great opportunity for, you know, some of the tech savvy younger people to come into this industry as a building engineer, you know, men and women, frankly, uh, that have a good computer background, have some computer science background, and and then and then need to learn systems. I mean, you can, it's, it's hard to control systems you don't understand. But I have seen plenty of people with the controls companies that know how to control a pump or a chiller, but don't really understand the refrigeration cycle of the chiller, or don't really understand, you know, how that system works. So I think we've got a problem there today, too, and for many, many years with controls companies not having staff, not having enough staff to fully understand HVAC and fully understand these systems. Yeah, I mean, I can certainly um, attest to that where, you know, there there's a lack of individuals who have that full understanding. Um, you know, I, I can tell you from my personal experience at Computrols, we're always looking for those engineers who want to drive their own building automation system and have the skills to do it. Um, and, and like you mentioned, they're just, they're fewer and farther between um, every day. So um, definitely have uh, seen that myself. Now um, for building engineers who are, who are, you know, they're in the profession right now and they feel like they're getting passed by with some of these computer skills um, and automation that they're seeing, how would you recommend that they keep up with all of these changes? Well, you know, it's, it's, it all comes down to training and constant training, constant uh, attending seminars and classes uh, outside of normal work hours. Typically, you know, people have to be willing to put in that extra time and effort to study and understand these systems and understand these control systems and ramp their knowledge up. Study computer science. Start with computer science 101. You know the world is uh, is changing rapidly on us right now, and uh, so this type of training and ongoing, I mean, just like you know, never-ending training is really the key. But part of the problem that is preventing that is, and I just had lunch yesterday with a few folks that we were talking about this. There seems to be a bit of an issue with. Uh, some building owners and managers, you know, are struggling with their budgets 
and they're having a hard time loosening the purse strings, which is a nice way of putting it, right? I can put it much more bluntly, but I'll put it nicely. Uh, and it, there's, there's a lot of short-sightedness, I think, on, on budgets, and uh, especially with such an acute problem we have with finding building engineers today. In my view, the training dollars need to be freed up significantly. They need to be freed up quickly. There needs to be several thousand dollars a year for training uh, purposes for building engineers that are young and starting out and have a lot of ramp up to do that's going to take, you know, 10 years, five, 10 years. And so it all comes down to training budgets and making this a very high priority. Uh, I think people know it's a high priority. I just don't see as much action being taken uh, on that high priority at this point. Yeah, I absolutely agree with you, Joe. I, I've seen the same thing where, um, as opposed to spending uh, where spending spending that budget where you're training your in-house staff to be more self-sufficient, what I'm seeing a lot of is uh, individual property management um, entities becoming more dependent on vendors, and uh, and frankly, no one knows that building as well as a building engineer. And so, if you can give them the tools to be successful. They're going to be able to do. They're they're going to be able to do their job much more efficiently than someone who, um, who's who's going to ten buildings a day and you know trying to keep up with what's what in each individual building. Right, right, and and that's another part of the problem is especially out in the suburban buildings, which are the majority of the buildings in the country. Uh, a building engineer might have seven buildings, might have seven thirty thousand or forty thousand square foot buildings. You know, normally the ratio is one building engineer for about two hundred thousand square feet. So you could have one building engineer with uh, with seven thirty thousand square foot buildings, so two hundred ten thousand feet, and they're running all over the place all day. And in the old days, we used to call it a Rolodex engineer that would uh, have a big Rolodex of business cards and contacts and would have to call somebody in for darn near any issue. But, you know, today and 30 years ago, we had, you know, the cream of the crop building engineers that hit the books, studied, got the training, took the initiative, you know, kind of at that top 10%. And we have that top 10% today. We had it 30 years ago. We have that top 10% today. The ones that take the initiative, the ones that have the training budgets, the ones that take the time to go to training, the ones that make this a priority. You know, so so that's, I haven't really seen that change over 30 years. There's there's always that cream of the crop that exists in any industry. Right. Now, um, you know, part of, you know, part of keeping up with all the technology is certainly self-education. And I think another big part of that is finding the right partner. So as a building engineer, what steps do you think these guys can take um, when looking at partnering with the right provider for new technology? Well, I mean, that that is a topic that I speak on and write on every day. And this is, this is really, really something that people need a lot of education on and it's fun you know everything's fundamentals and on this this topic of how do you pre-qualify vendors and partners and how do you pre-qualify consultants how do you pre-qualify the best general contractors mechanical contractors how do you pre-qualify the best controls firms controls contractors how do you pre-qualify the best test adjust and balance contractors which by the way in, in my experience and uh, 
a lot of people's experience, the test adjust and balance piece is one of the most critical subcontracts that uh, that someone can procure on any project. And hiring the cream of the crop tab firms in any city is a critical component of uh, of doing a retrofit or building a new building or doing a tenant build out, whatever whatever we're talking about, right? Ground up construction. Some of these specialty subcontractors like test adjust and balance, like controls are just and, and like commissioning, which is what my firm does. Those specialties are critical to the success of any project. And knowing how to pre-qualify these firms is an important skill to, to, to learn and to have. So I've been on a mission for several years now on writing articles and speaking about how do you pre-qualify? How do you do it properly? How do you find the best 10 or 20% of the firms out there that do building envelope work, that do roof consulting, that do energy retrofits that uh, that are mechanical contractors, electrical contractors, architects, engineers, lawyers, accountants, any of this, you know. I mean, when you sell when you sell your house or you sell a building, are you going to hire the 25th rated broker to sell your house or your building or are you going to hire the one of the top 3 brokers to sell your house or building and make sure you maximize your return? Well, if it's me, I'm going to hire the top 3. But then you have to know how to pre-qualify the top 3. And what credentials do they need to have? What kind of training and education do they need to have that's going to work, that who's going to work on your, your facility, your project? What kind of experience do they need? What kind of project experience do they need? What kind of skills do they need? This gets very detailed and, uh, in a simple, uh, pre-qualification, uh, or RFQ or request for qualifications is a missing link in a lot of procurement processes that people are missing a key link. People go straight to the request for proposal to firms that have not been pre-qualified versus the request for qualifications should be first, the request for proposal should be second. Yeah, I mean, I can tell you, you know, we've we've certainly seen the same uh <clears throat> when it comes to RFPs, it's um it's all too often a race to the bottom. It's 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 not a, a full evaluation of who's going to be the best partner for this project. And particularly um, for these ongoing projects, you know, I always say with building automation um, companies in particular, you're looking at a vendor that's going to be in your building for the next 10 plus years. Um, it's not the same as somebody who's going to come in and um, install a you know, new tile floor or something like that. You know, it's an installation sure. and that's pretty much it. Mm-hmm. Um, right. You know, right. so I think, uh, I think getting that message across to, to property managers and property owners um, that, you know, that a lot of these really critical components of, like you said, retrofits, tenant buildouts, ground up construction, everything, um, it's not always the lowest price should win. It, it needs to be a, a little bit more of a, thorough assessment. And I think, uh, I think, you know, it, it, you always say, look, um, I'll go hire a consultant who knows how to assess this. Well, how do you know how to assess the consultant to begin with? Right. Um, right. So exactly. It's, uh, exactly. It's, you got to know where to get started. Um, so right. I, right. I've definitely seen the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think that even, even, you know, you, you named the tile floor example or really any, any trade or any consultant, they're all very important to any project because all those pieces add up to 
to uh, to a quality project. So even when we're building a, a ground up building and we have the, we have a top and we have a top consultant for the building envelope, we get I'd like to get a top separate consultant for the roof. A lot of building envelope firms will do roof and and the vertical facade. But roof, to me, in, in my experience, is so much more specialized than the vertical facade. It's a whole different skill set of consultants. And uh, so these are the kind of details that a lot of people aren't very familiar with in procuring consultants and pre-qualifying consultants. And even when we start, start building that curtain wall on a 30-story building or a 20-story building, the company that's hired as a subconsultant to do the backer rod and, and silicone uh, sealants between the various substrates of whether it's, uh, it's a aluminum window frame to a piece of granite or it's granite to granite substrate, any, any of those caulked joints, the detailing of those caulked joints and the material that's used and the person that's holding that caulking gun and doing that work is, ends up being a very, very critical part of the job. So even some of the littlest subcontracts are very critical. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so what are some of the trends you're seeing uh, that are changing the landscape of building management um, right now and, and what you see coming up over the next five or so years? Well, I mean, I, I think automation, you know, is going to just continue to, to be very, very important. And, uh, Having the right automation companies involved in buildings is going to be it can continue to be more important than ever. The city of Denver, uh, which I, I'm on some advisory councils with the city of Denver representing the Building Owners and Managers Association, I'm seeing a lot of uh, regulations on the horizon that are uh, pretty pretty uh, intense and strict. And uh, building codes are being, uh, you know, the International Energy Conservation Code is being amended heavily by the city of Denver. And many cities are doing their own amendments. And that's typical of any code. Uh, every city does their amendment book. And oftentimes the amendments can be uh, as thick of a book as the original code book was. You could have a two-inch thick code book and a two-inch thick amendment book on top of it. So these amendments to these codes are getting very rigorous, very strict. Uh, the city of Denver has many initiatives that they are talking about rolling out. They've started with the energy benchmarking, which Chicago and many other cities do, where your Energy Star score is publicized for buildings over 25,000 square feet. Every year you have to submit your Energy Star score, and it's kind of a public shaming process that, that the cities have started with. Well, that's going to evolve, in my viewpoint, that's going to evolve into fines, into carbon taxes, into all sorts of penalties to buildings if they don't start improving their energy efficiency. So all of that being said, you know, this is a major changing lands landscape over the next five years that's coming at us. And it's going to change very quickly. And over the next 10 years, for example, well, I'll give you another example. Uh, City of Denver, by the year 2035, so that's 16 years from now, is going to require all new construction of commercial buildings and homes to be net zero energy. And then you have to ask yourself, how does a 30-story new building do net zero? There's not enough surface area on the facade of the roof or the plaza areas to put photovoltaic panels. Well, no, there isn't. And even as we improve photovoltaics, there still won't be enough surface area. So 
So they'll have to buy all of the balance of their power from off-site solar to be net zero. So this is where the building codes are going for new construction. And there's, then there's going to be a whole other set of rigorous code amendments geared towards existing buildings because that's the bulk of the buildings and forcing existing buildings into being more efficient. This is, this is a major, major change that is happening or that's going to happen over the next 10 to 15 years. So, yeah, I mean, it sounds like as a, uh, as a facility manager, uh, that's going to be a, an important part of um, their individual roles going forward is, you know, understanding what these regulations are, how you meet, um, how you meet them. And again, you know, we go back to how do I stay up, you know, how do I stay up with the latest and greatest technology? How do I assess potential partners? So it's not something that's going away. It's something that's going to become a bigger part of their, um, a bigger part of their role in managing the building. So, yeah, that's right. Yeah, Scott, let me elaborate on that for just a moment. So we kind of have two pieces uh, of, of, of that puzzle of, of that puzzle of how do you stay up uh, in current. And so if we talk about uh, kind of the younger generation, you know, how do they do it? And then the second question is, how does the more seasoned and experienced folks that are in their 40s, 50s and 60s, how do they stay up to date? So, you know, first first with the younger generation, the, the, the obvious way that the younger generation needs to get up to, up to speed on all this is through education and training. Coupled with what's missing in the universities and the colleges, unlike the trade schools. And as I said earlier, I went to automotive trade school when I was 17 years old and and. Sorry about that. It knocked my headset off. So the trade schools are phenomenal because you're you're hit, you're hitting the books in the morning and you're in the laboratory in the afternoon every day. So when I was in automotive school, we studied refrigeration for six weeks because cars have air conditioning systems, obviously. So we had six weeks, Monday through Friday of refrigeration textbook, three hours a day in a classroom, 40 of us in a classroom with a refrigeration instructor. And then we were out in the garage, this huge garage at Denver Automotive and Diesel College, tearing apart refrigeration systems, tearing apart compressors, charging systems, properly charging systems, testing systems, and checking the discharge temperatures. And that was how we learned. But the universities are trying their best to solve this laboratory component because studying the books is half of the puzzle. Doing things hands-on and working with systems and, and being in the so-called laboratory or working as, a, as an intern in a building or working as an intern for a controls company or a general contractor or mechanical contractor, I think that's an essential part of the education process. And, uh, and then we talk about the, you know, the, the employees that are in their 40s, 50s, and 60s, and that becomes an issue of how do you stay relevant? How do you stay current? And, and, and more importantly, how do you stay relevant so that you stay sharp and you don't lose your edge and you stay up with technology? So I think the same applies. I think it's reading trade journals. It's it's studying uh, textbooks, studying trade journals, studying uh, the latest technologies, reading the O&M manuals, uh, you know, letter for letter and understanding all this new technology. It just doesn't all, it doesn't all happen with hands-on experience. There's a, there's a study and reading component that still has to happen. 
and going to seminars and going to trade shows and things like that. That needs to continue to happen kind of lifelong. Yeah, and something that you had mentioned in one of the presentations I saw you give is particularly for those individuals who have families who are, you know, were already working a full-time job as a building engineer. Um, it's a it's a bit of a sacrifice, and it's just a matter of, you know, how do I how do I get started here? So it's, you know, it's is it a class that you take one night a week? Is it, you know, attending webinars? Um, webinars are one of the ways that I like to learn personally because I can do it from my desk. I get some visual cues along with a lot of uh, a lot of good data, um, and it's free. Um, so it's, right, it's, right. it's one of my favorite ways to learn because of that. And, uh, I think, um, a lot of times it's, it's overwhelming because I think we all get wrapped up in our jobs, day-to-day -day activities, and it's, it's a flurry of keeping up with the latest fire. Um, but, you know, mm -hmm. setting aside that time, I think is, is where you hit the nail on the head, where it's prioritizing it really. It's how important yeah. is it to you to stay at the top of your game? Yeah, I, I, I think literally uh, a person does need to schedule these kinds of things into their calendar. Uh, I know that when I went to, I, I did 20 years in night school to get an associate's bachelor's and master's degree while working 60 hours a week. And so people kind of look at me like, how in the heck did you do that? And, uh, you know, I was getting up at four in the morning every day before work and studying before work and found, you know, a couple of hours, four to six in the morning to study. Had to go to bed early at night to do that. And then lunchtime, close the door. If you have an office, I had an office a good portion of the time, private office, close the door at 12 o'clock, open the book, hit it till one o'clock, reopen my door at one. So picked up another hour a day doing that. So the analogy here to, the, to just setting aside that time and having those slots scheduled in your calendar so nothing else fills those slots. So that lunchtime example is a prime example. Rather than going to lunch, which I'm not saying don't go to lunch because you need to get out there and be with people to learn what's going on out there as well that way. But I think several days a week, if a person's trying to ramp up their knowledge, they need to block that lunch hour for them. And it's, it's, I call it scheduling time with yourself. It's scheduling meetings with yourself. And because uh, otherwise the calendar is going to get filled very quickly with meetings that aren't with yourself, that are with other people. Absolutely. Uh, that's I mean, it's it's easier said than done, but uh, you're 100 percent right. It's all about prioritizing yourself in some capacity. Um, so if you're talking to a young person who's considering becoming a building engineer as a career, what do you tell them as far as one, you know, and you've touched on some of this, but one, how do I, how do I come in as prepared as possible? And then two, why, you know, why, why become a building engineer? What's the appeal? Well, I think, I think part of the, and it's kind of a, a little bit bigger picture I view than just telling a young person, you know, why should they consider being a building engineer today? I think the, the bigger picture is why would you tell a young person to go into any of the trades today, which includes building engineers? Why would you want to tell a young person what, what's the benefit of you becoming a controls contractor or a controls technician, a building engineer, an electrician, uh, a plumber? Any of, the, uh, in, any of these trades are great trades. They are, 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 are great professions pay very good money, you can support a family in these trades. And so I think I would I would kind of open it up to more of a wider 
with younger people, here's the benefit of working in the trades, including being a building engineer. And, uh, and, and I would roll the building engineer in with because controls companies are having a serious, serious, just as big of a problem trying to find people right now. And, uh, and, and when I say serious, that is the absolute, you know, that isn't even, a, isn't even a strong enough adjective to describe how big this problem is with finding controls technicians, building engineers, chief engineers, electricians, et cetera. This is a, this is a, a grave problem we're, we're, we're facing today. And I think that the word needs to get out uh, nationwide at the high school level. You know, we need to, we need to get the word out before people, before these kids in high school decide where they, if they want to go to college or trade school, I think they need to understand early in the high school process, not senior year, you know, freshmen in high school, sophomores in high school, here's what your options are. And college is not the only option. And I think the parents of these high school kids need to understand the benefits of their kids going into the trades. And college isn't, isn't cut out for everybody. And uh, so that's just my view. No, I think I think that's right. And something you mentioned early on was perception um, and changing that perception at the high school level is key because um, that's where that's where you make that decision. I mean, at a very young age. And, um, you know, I always thought, you know, coming coming out of high school when I was 18 years old, I'm like, I'm not ready to make this life decision that's going to you know send me down a path that. I don't know whether or not it's right for me, but um, I think I think you're 100% right. I think it's it's changing that perception and educating um, educating at that level to to help kids understand what their options are. Um, and and I think you know you, something else you mentioned early on is look, there's there's a living to be made here. Um, it's not just uh, it's not just the job. You know, you can do well, you can excel, um, and these are really tangible skills that um, you can bring to this trade. Yeah, I mean, and and, and the fact of the matter is that uh, when we talk about building engineers and chief engineers, as I said earlier, these large downtown buildings, the chief engineers are are making, you know, low to mid six figures salaries, including bonus. And and when you talk about a, a mechanical engineer that's working for a design firm, very difficult for them to get up into that, you know, low 100s, mid 100s range as a design engineer. So, so I hired a, a engineer, a building engineer 30 years ago when I was with Heinz and interviewed mechanical engineering students at Metropolitan State College at Denver and University of Colorado Denver, which are on the same campus together near downtown Denver and ended up hiring a degreed mechanical engineer. And we made them that this individual an apprentice building engineer with Heinz at that time in this 52-story building, and uh, he is today uh, the city chief engineer for Heinz. And, uh, you know, he, he could have gone to work for a design firm, but we brought him in at the apprentice level at the same salary that he would have made working for a design firm, and he moved up rapidly, and his salary moved up rapidly, and moved up quicker than his salary would have moved up if he had been working for a design firm for 10 years. So this is this is a lot of people don't realize that uh, that there's a significant upward career path starting as a as a entry level building engineer in in these bigger buildings. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, 
Well, Joe, we uh, we greatly appreciate you coming on the podcast with us today. You're welcome back anytime. Uh, you know, you're a wealth of knowledge on on the topic of building technology, and um, particularly from the facility management standpoint, which uh, we're we're constantly trying to help facility managers um, better understand this new technology. But uh, we really appreciate you joining us today. And like I said, we'd be happy to have you back anytime. All right, Scott. I appreciate you asking me to uh, talk today. Thanks for uh, thanks for the podcast. All right, and thank you all for listening today. Uh, that was Joe Havy from EQ. Uh, we'll be coming back to you shortly with a new podcast. Thank you again for joining us. This is Scott Holstein with Compu Troll signing off. <laughs>